You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. So this is our final week. Last week, Aaron several times said, Colin's going to land the plane And while I was sitting there, all I could think of is, surely you can't be serious. (laughs) Okay, don't leave me hanging here. (laughs) The, the, The proper answer is, I am, and don't call me Shirley. Um, This series has been entitled, uh, Layers. It's the idea that we'd pull back and strip away the layers of preconception and misconception regarding our Christian faith, what it looks like to be a true Christian. I mean, let's, we, we have to be honest and face it, there's a lot of erroneous ideas about Christianity out in the world today. And unless we're willing to pull back those layers of cultural, religious, traditional, and popular thinking, of what true Christianity is, unless we're willing to pull back those layers, we're really in in danger of completely missing the point. I don't know if you follow the news at all, entertainment news, I'll call this, Um, but last week, Candace Cameron Burry from the Full House, if you're, aren't you all that age where you watch Full House? No? (laughs) Sorry. Uh, everybody younger than 40 seems young. Um, she announced that she was leaving the Hallmark Channel and that she was going to the Great American Family Channel. And she said, I know that people behind the Great American Family are Christians and love the Lord and, want, and they wanted to promote faith programming and good family entertainment. She had a bunch of other things, but then she went on to say, and I think that Great American Family, the Great American Family Channel, will keep traditional marriage at the core. So when I see an article like that, I usually skim the article so I can get the general idea, and I go right to the comments. Anytime I see anything about Christianity, I always want to see what people are going to say. Okay? If you ever want a lexicon of Christian misunderstanding, misquoting, and general nonsense... Just go to the comment section on any article that references Christianity, okay? Sadly, many people do not know what Christianity is. And it's sadder still that there are even those people who would call themselves Christians who do not know what lies at the heart of true Christianity. Now, remember one of my... Uh, you know, and in, in talking about layers, it just brought me back to my Bible school days, and I won't tell you how long ago it was, but it wasn't last year. Um, but he said something that stuck with me for a long time, and he said this. He said, you know, if, you were, if you're willing to pull back the layers of your, you know, if you kind of want to strip away the layers of your life, you know, what happens if you're, what happens if you're an onion? you strip away the layers, all all you're left with is is peelings. And, you know, what if you go back, what if you go through the exercise of Christianity 
And all you're left with is peelings. A vague belief that God is, you know, in God and somehow Jesus is associated with it or, you know, there's a Christian ethic that we adhere to. You know, we, we do the right thing. We follow the rules. We, we keep to a predetermined set of ethics. You know, we, we go to church once a week. If we're really a Christian, we volunteer and get involved. You know, having the right kind of friends. Keeping up the appearance of being a good person. You know, if we need to be honest with ourselves, we have to ask the question, is this what I think a Christian is? Does this more or less represent my Christian life? And if it does, God calls it something. He calls it lip service. In Isaiah 29, he accuses the, the nation of Israel of it. And again, Jesus in quoting Isaiah 29, says the same thing in Matthew 15. He says, These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So it brings up a really, really somber question. If the Lord came here today and he was going to speak over your Christian life, what would he say? Would he call it lip service? Just a bunch of peelings without anything at the real, at the core, without a, without a true center? Or would he find true and genuine faith? You know, and all through this letter, the Apostle Paul that the Apostle Paul wrote to the, to the Galatians, he's advocating for true Christianity. He's advocating for the true Christian experience. And as he signs off, he boils it all down to one overarching thing. So let's take a look and see what it is. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. <clears throat> see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the God of Israel. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or with your spirit, brothers. Amen. <clears throat> Did you catch what Paul holds up as the center of true Christianity? I'd ask the question, but then someone might say the wrong thing, and then we'd all have to, it would be really awkward, and people would be like, ah, oh, I'm glad I'm not that person. So I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what it is. 
At the center of the Christian life is the cross. The cross is what lays at the center, the very center and the very core of our faith. You know, I've said this before, and I, you know, and it's worth repeating. I am always amazed at how the Bible can pack so much into so few words. I, it, you know, it, it, here's what Paul says. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, to stand up here and in a few minutes try and do justice to that, to try and unpack that statement is actually impossible. And the best I can hope to do is just kind of draw out a few thoughts. And so as we wrap up our, our series on, on, on Galatians, I want to give you four things, four things that the cross stands for and why it's at the very heart of our Christian faith. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just a couple of thoughts that have been rattling around in my brain this week as I was thinking about this message. So, number one, the cross is the place where mercy, love, and justice meet. Now, we're going to get a little heady here, okay? I, I really like the practical part of the scriptures, but we've got to understand the theology before we get to the practical part, okay? So just stick with me. <clears throat> I'll try not to lose anyone. So it's important that we understand the concept of justice as it relates to God. When we speak of justice, we're not referring to something that God does. We're referring to something that God is. Justice is intrinsically linked to God's nature and dwells within the very character and essence of who God is. Every, you with me so far? <laughs> Nod your head. Um, justice is not something that exists outside of God. Okay? It's not an outside force that compels him to act. There's nothing higher than God. There's no concept higher that, that, that we have as humans that's higher than God. There's no concept that transcends him. Justice is a part of who God is. Simply put, God dwells in perfect justice. The practical part of God's justice is that, that God acts in accordance with his character. When God rewards the person who does good and punishes the wrongdoer, God is not acting arbitrarily. He's not, he's not, he doesn't want a decision for him to say, oh, I'm going I'm to take action. God is simply doing what's in perfect harmony with his character. Okay? So the bottom line is this. God's character will not leave him uh, will not permit him to leave sin unpunished. Stick with me for another minute here and we'll get through this, okay? Now, justice is not the only characteristic that God possesses. God also possesses mercy and love, as well as other characteristics that make up who God is. God is the sum total of all of his characteristics, to put a theological term on it, we call those characteristics attributes, everything that makes God, God. 
And all of these attributes always work in perfect harmony together. God God is never at cross-purposes with himself. No attribute of God is in conflict with another. Okay, that's the end of theology. No more, I promise. (laughs) Okay, so let me give you an example of what I mean by that, okay? There's this popular notion in in the world that would say this. You know, somebody would say this, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. That's part of it. And then it's like, you know, um, as long as you do the best you can, you know, as long as, you, as long as you're the best person that you can be, God's going to, you know, when you get before God, he's just going to kind of go, you know, a little wink there. Yeah, okay, you blew it there, you blew it there. And, you know, uh, you know, okay, yeah, come on in, right? You know? And this would line up with God's love and God's mercy. But it wouldn't line up with his justice, which always requires that wrongdoing be punished. So let me bring this back to the cross. In the cross, we see all of God's attributes working in harmony with each other. And in particular, just want to draw these out. They're not all, it's not exclusive to this, but these are some of the ones that I was thinking about. His mercy, his kindness and compassion, knowing that man cannot achieve his own salvation. The second is his love, which is his goodwill towards men. A subject which... So much has been written, and so much focuses on it. In fact, if the world makes one mistake, it just focuses way too much on God's love and not on his other attributes. And finally, his justice, particularly as it relates to the sin of man. So we come to the cross with the understanding that Christ's death, we see, we see God's justice towards sinners satisfied in the death of Christ, And by faith we receive his love and his mercy, which results in the forgiveness of our sins because the punishment that was due us fell on Christ. The cross is the place where love and mercy and justice meet. Galatians chapter 1 verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, our, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Mercy, love, and justice. Chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Mercy, love, and justice. Chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Mercy, love, and justice. The hymn writer says, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. At the cross, all of God's attributes meet in perfect harmony. Those attributes that we, that we, you know, we find compelling, like 
mercy, grace, faithfulness, love, goodness, as well as those characteristics that we find maybe less desirable in God, like His holiness and His justice, all of those things met together at the cross. For the Christian, the cross overshadows everything. It's the culmination of everything that God is. All His goodness, all His mercy, all His love and all His justice, and so much more. The Apostle John was right when he wrote. He said, you know, if we, if we recorded all of the stuff that God's done, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. The cross is the place where mercy, love, and justice meet. Number two, the cross is the place of offense and persecution. Well, the cross is probably a very popular um, fashion accessory. It generally does not make a very popular topic for conversation. When you suggest to someone that they are sinners and in need of a savior, most people at that point are going to tap out. And more often than not, they're going to be offended and put off by the very thought of it. The offense of the cross centers on the fact that all men are sinners and that they cannot save themselves. And the old, it's only in the death of the Son of God that there's atonement for sin. And pointing out the enormity of sin and the price of redemption messes with human pride. Pride's probably the biggest barrier to the message of the cross. And it's such a huge barrier that only the Holy Spirit can break through it. Only the Holy Spirit can break through it into a person's heart and reveal the spiritual truth of it. You know, people are very resistant to this biblical truth. So much so that they would strongly react. Some will become combative. Some will become abusive. Some might even become violent and deadly. And in a word, it's persecution. Verse 17 of chapter 6, Paul says this, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in, on my body the marks of Jesus. And what he means here is he's saying, look, I have suffered persecution for preaching the gospel. For preaching about the cross. Paul had been whipped. He'd been beaten. He'd been thrown in prison. He was stoned with large rocks, so much so that when they were done, they kind of you know, brushed their hands off and walked away and left him as dead. All through this letter, Paul's fighting his persecutors and those who oppose him. And like it or not, the cross causes offense. And if we stand in the truth of the cross, unwavering, unapologetically, it's going to lead to offense. Possibly persecution. Correction, most likely 
persecution. But you know what? It's the only hope for fallen and sinful mankind. Through the message of the cross, men and women are saved. Just take a look at your own life. Once you were lost, and then you heard the message, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, you saw your sin and your need for a Savior, and you saw that Savior hanging on a cross for your sin. And you believed, and you were saved. You know, and it's so easy for us, it's so easy, it's happening, it's, it's actually a pandemic out there in churches. It is so easy to want to bypass the offense of the gospel. It's so tempting to make the way to God more palatable and less of an affront. Make it less offensive to people. Verse 12 in chapter 6, Paul deals with it. He says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. John Stott, who regularly gets quoted at this, at this pulpit, I'll say. Um, and I like John Stott, and I know Aaron does, so, you know, he's not divine. He just, he just he's very quotable. <clears throat> he says this, it's natural for fallen humanity to decline from the real, the inward and the spiritual, and to fabricate a substitute religion which is easy and comfortable because its demands are external and ceremonial only. There's, you know, there's just no way to get away from the offense of the cross. But, and it's a big but, there is no other way that men can be saved apart from the cross. Paul encourages us with this in, in Romans, his letter to the Romans. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus, whom we call Lord and Savior, has sent us out into the world with a message which quite, quite, quite frankly is going to be offensive. But it saves. It saves. It's the only way to salvation in God. And how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The cross is the place of offense and persecution. Number three, the cross is the place of separation and death. When we come to the cross in faith, we enter into death with Christ. Our old life dies. Chapter 6, verse 14. 
But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Flipping back to chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When, and when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, when he says, I will only boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus, this is what he's saying. He's saying, the cross of Jesus is my cross. His death is my death. And I take my place with Him who died for the sin of the world. My sin. And I am delivered through death from the person that I used to be. I am no longer enslaved to sin. The principles and the philosophies of the world no longer have any authority over me and I am free to follow God in happiness and obedience. Chapter 3, verse 3. In the same way, we also were children. Uh, uh, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The cross is the place where a person comes to die and be separated from their former life. The cross is the place where a person comes to die and be separated and free from the tyranny and the slavery of sin and the world. And there's no going back. Back in my early days of, of, uh, of, of real estate, I, I was in commercial real estate office leasing, and so I'd go into office towers and I would start kind of at the top floor and I'd hand my card out and get, you know, the who is, who is it that makes the decision for your for your office and your office space, and then I'd get their name, and, and I'd go around the floor. And then usually I'd just you know, dip out into the, into the uh, stairwell and go to the next floor. Except every once in a while when I was, when I was on a floor and, I, and I'd go through, I, and I learned afterwards, you got to check and make sure it doesn't happen to you. Every once in a while, the, the door would click behind you, and you'd go to turn and be like locked and you're on the 22nd floor and you're like, I now have to go down 22 floors in order to get out of the stairwell. So later on, I kind of learned, you know, when, when you go out the door, you kind of check and make sure that it opens, right? So that you can get out at the, you know, you can just walk down one flight of stairs and get out. That's what happens when we die with Christ at the cross, that door slams behind us and we can't get out. We can't get back in there. When a person comes to the cross and dies, Christ closes the door. He closes the door on their old life. And that's a door that can never be opened again. That person is dead and gone. That chapter of their life is, is closed for good. But then something miraculously happens. Miraculous happens. It's Christ opens a new door and he, and he opens a new chapter and he gives that person a brand new life. And that's my last point, which is the cross is the place of new creation. Verse 15 of chapter 6, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And in my mind, there, there's, there's a lot of amazing things about salvation. There's a lot of amazing things about the cross. But I find this one particularly beautiful. 
that we weren't just saved from something, we were saved to something. The work of Christ Christ on the cross gives us new life. It makes us a new creation. Paul, again, in, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what does it mean? What, what, is, what does this mean to be a new creation? What does it look like? How does a new creation act? One of these days, we'll have to unpack all of that stuff. <laughs> I'll give you a couple things. <clears throat> First of all, it means that we're adopted into the family of God. He makes us his own sons and daughters, children of the king. And before we were slaves, we were slaves to sin, slaves to our own selfish nature, slaves to a world system that's, that's going to hell. But now we're free. And we've been placed securely in God's family. Galatians 4, 4 4-7 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God you know, to prove that God's adopted us into his family. He's given us a spirit. He's put a spirit in our heart. That's the proof that we're heirs. And having the Holy Spirit makes everything new. Now we can walk by the Spirit, as he talks about in chapter 5. Now we live in ways that not only please God, but provide for us the best life, the Christ life. We're free from slavery and the tyranny of sin and the cross opens up the way to new life. Again, quoted before, but it's so appropriate to this and that's Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself up for me. Christians are not saved because they obey. They obey because they have been saved and because of the cross. I think it's important that we understand that, right? That we're not saved because we obey. We obey because we're saved. What's this new creation look like? It looks like Jesus. You know, going back to the, that article that, about Candace Cameron Burry, the one thing I notice is that many people in the comment section talked about Jesus in favorable terms. They weren't particularly accurate in their depiction, their description of Jesus, but there was just this widely... Um, this wide thought that, 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 that Jesus loves people. And as new creations, we should look like Jesus and we should be known for our love. After all, 
we have the Spirit of Christ in us. Now, there's those that'll be offended by our faith, but if offense is given, let it be the offense of the message, not because of us personally, because we're unloving or prickly, to put a theological term on it, being jerks. Discovering what it means to be a new creation, that's a lifetime journey. And after it's said and done, in an instant, you know, at that moment of death or if the Lord comes back, in that moment, we are going to be transformed into the full potential of what that new creation can be when Christ welcomes us home to be with him for eternity. There's hope for us. There's hope for us in the cross. So when we pull back the layers of Christianity, what do we have? We have the cross. Christians are people of the cross. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas, the gift of God sending His Son into the world. And as great as Christmas is, it stands in the shadow of the cross. Because the Son did not come to earth just to hang out with us. He came to die. And the moment that Christ appeared as a baby in that manger, the countdown started. He began His journey towards the cross. And as we head into the Christmas season, I would challenge you not to lose sight of the fact that the incarnation led to the cross. That's why we had the incarnation, because Christ had to go to the cross for our sin. Christmas is a time for giving, and God's great gift to the world was to send his son to die, that we might have, live in newness of life. The cross stands at the center of the true Christian life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for the suffering, the, the shame, the persecution, all that you went through to purchase us for yourself. That God's love and mercy and justice met in perfect harmony and it broke on Christ in order that we might become adopted sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.